Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Here for the Invested Podcast, where we are figuring out in this particular podcast how to invest like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, other great investors we call value investors or sometimes called rule one investors. And today we are going to really get into understanding how they invest because we're going to look at specifically what they're buying. And by looking at the filings with the SEC called 13F filings, which are compiled in various websites, including rule1investing.com, Toolbox, or Dataroma, and others you can Google, looking for, um, what would you look for if we're Googling this kind of stuff, I guess? I Googled uh, 13-F filings, which brought up a bunch of SEC websites. And then if you go past those, uh, you'll get to the secondary websites. We did a whole episode, mm, two or three episodes ago, about why using the SEC's website to look up 13F filings actually isn't really super user-friendly. Um, and go back and check that out. The short version is that they don't show you what's happened over time from quarter to quarter or from year to year. And what we really want to know is how have these people been changing what they've been buying? and selling. So we like the secondary websites. My dad's website, rollmoneinvesting.com, has a curated list, as he <laughs> named it last time, of, uh, of investing gurus that he follows. And then there's a bunch of other uh, sites that you can find from searching. Uh, you can also search, one good way I found was just to search Warren Buffett 13F filings, because that tends to bring up the kind of sources that we're looking for, like p- other people want to know what value investors are buying, or you can search Berkshire Hathaway, 13F filings. Uh, now, those will all kind of get you around there. Now, the reason we're doing a curated list is because there are actually several thousand fund managers out there. And if you search broadly enough, you'll have every stock in the market will come up that somebody bought. Um, yeah. Because obviously, if somebody's selling it, somebody's buying it. And um, and those stocks are bought and sold every single day across the entire market. All of them are. Um, and the problem with that is that the vast majority, and I'm talking 95% or more, of the fund managers who are filing 13F filings are not our style of investor. They're, they're not investors who are looking carefully at value and price. Well, that's what I wanted to just ask you about, because a, a number of these other websites, like I think Dataroma, gives also curated lists mm-hmm. of investors. Yeah. And it'll say like, you know, I don't know, these titles of like categories, like small funds, value oriented, or like large funds with like only fortune 500 companies or something like just like whatever the style of the fund is and then they'll give this list but the lists are quite large and i'm never really sure without doing my own research which i know i should do but i don't have time you know in this moment never really sure what to think of those lists so how have you chosen your list well my list is chosen based on a couple of criteria first off um a large number of the people on the list are well-known value investors. They, they, okay. they look Okay, who for... are some of those people? Okay, so um, we're gonna talk today, I wanna talk about five of them in particular. Oh, okay. So, so let's come back to them then and yeah. give me the rest of your, of your criteria. And the second is that um, if I don't know them, 
um, but they're managing they're managing enough money where they have to file for the with the SEC. That means they're managing over a hundred million dollars. And if they're managing over a hundred million dollars, and I don't know them, um, there's only one other criteria I can use to determine whether I should be watching them closely, and that is based on the assumption that enough people like them to give them a hundred million dollars. Are they investing in a small number of companies or are they diversifying across 100 companies? So I'm uh, looking at at their track records, not not so much the rate of return, because that's not necessarily an indicator in any given year. But I'm looking at their um, their focus because really good rule one style investors, really good investors like me, um, Buffett, Munger are Daniel's smiling. Sorry, I didn't Sorry. mean that. To that was be such. Looking. That was such a humble I brag. I can't even handle it, it right be, now. I did not mean it to come out that For way. For really good investors like me and Warren Buffett. Oh my gosh, it did come out. Oh like my that. gosh, I'm so glad we're recording this right now. I meant that to be that investors like me buy a small number of stocks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Um, it, Don't the, worry, Dad. This, this is your embarrassed, embarrassed voice. We embarrassed. all understand what you meant. Don't worry. All right, and so, I'm really glad this is recorded. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the key we're looking for is that people are very focused. And what that means when you see somebody who's only buying 10 or 15 stocks is that they have to do the research. They have to be very committed to each one of those companies. And that's hugely important for us because we don't have time to go do research on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies, which even a curated list will produce, right? I mean, yeah. I've got 46 people on this list and every quarter you're gonna see five or 600 companies difference in their portfolios. And now you gotta look at all those. So imagine what you'd have to be looking at if you looked at thousands of people who are investing in hundreds of companies each. Oh, it's it just not feasible. It's not gonna no, happen. Not gonna happen. So you, first you need to curate the list and you curate it based on are these people investing the way I invest? And the answer in my list, yes. And second, um, are they, if I don't know them, are they highly focused? In which case I know they're committed to these positions. Uh, the, the, the one caveat we talked about last week was that they can be very committed and have a very large percentage of their portfolio in one company. And it's misleading because we can't see if they're shorting a, a matched pair. And that, that can be a real problem. So we need to actually research these guys a little bit. Um, and by the way, strangely, they are almost all male. I don't know if I have a single female investor on this entire list, which is really a shame. Um, yeah, that because needs to change. It needs well, to I'm change. on it. I'm on it, Dad. I know. And I'm so excited that you're on it. And there are, there are, there are very successful female fund managers, they just don't happen to invest the way I do, um, at least the ones that I, I know about. So if you know somebody that's really good and she's female, I wanna know because, hey, money's green. It doesn't have a gender and it doesn't have a color and doesn't have a doesn't have a, a religion. It's, it's an amazing leveler. So if somebody's really, really good at what they're doing, pretty much nobody in the world gives a rat's rear end about what all the rest of that stuff is. People, as Buffett said, if you can make 15% a year, he doesn't care who you are. People will swim across shark infested waters to give you their money. If you're sitting on a deserted island, they're going to get there. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, without turning this into a feminist podcast, there's a whole realm of arguments around opportunity and access to opportunity that, you know, women often don't have the same level of as as white men. So, well, let's just roll right into that for a second, because guess what? You can take a thousand dollars in paper trading skills and demonstrate that you know how to make 15 percent a year. You don't need anybody else. I'm telling you right now, you well, don't that's, need anybody that's the point. else. Right. No, I, I, and that's the next point is that's why this kind of do-it-yourself education that you've been giving me and, and you've been giving everybody who's listening, I think is so incredibly valuable because it does give a, a an equal playing field. It does give the opportunity. I mean, of course, then there's, you know, a million other things to say about opportunity and like time and access and all that stuff. But for the people who are listening, who can find a bit of time every day to work on this. Yeah, you, you are right. If you can show a good track record, I would certainly hope that a woman or a man who's not white would have equal opportunity to bring capital in as a white man. I certainly would hope. I'm sure there are instances in which it's not the same, but I would would think it could be done. As soon as you walk downtown into Wall Street and you start to try to attract capital from big players, then you're going to run into all sorts of biases, right? I mean, they've they've existed forever. But what I'm saying is, and what I love for you, my daughter, is that you don't have to go downtown. There's an enormous opportunity of capital. If you can demonstrate that you can make 15% a year consistently, there's an enormous number of people who downtown Wall Street people don't even want to talk to. I mean, they don't even want to talk to you if you've got less than $100,000. And even less than a quarter million, they don't even want to talk to you. They're going to shove you over to some robo-advisor. And and there's where you're going to get your investment yeah, but th- advice. there are very good reasons for that. Yeah, it doesn't make so sense. So the point here no, is let's talk about the reason. It doesn't make sense financially for these guys to spend time on you if they're only going to make a thousand dollars a year, which is right. what they'll make if you have a hundred grand or fifty grand. They're going to make five hundred dollars. They they don't. That's not even a phone call. So. If, which the, which I think is a perfectly good reason. Okay, that's yeah, economics. It, I'm not arguing that it's not a good reason. What I'm saying is that there are millions of people who do not have access to someone who can make right. 15% a year. Right. And if you are female, black, you're in a, a Muslim, whatever discrimination you're facing in the rest of your life, I'm telling you right now, if you can demonstrate you can make 15% a year, money will flow to you. Because these people, these millions of people don't have a choice. And by the way, there's millions of people who are female, last time I checked, and they would love, many women would love to invest with a woman. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so let's know, do it. I'm going to teach All a right. class on how to do that. I'm going to absolutely teach a class on how to go, how to build that portfolio track record and then how to step in and begin managing money. That would be a great class. Let us know if you want to. Let us know if you want. You're interested in that class because we'll. I'll put that together. So let's talk. Let's talk about these these five people. I want to pick out of this list of curated gurus, so we yeah, can understand uh, something about this. Let's go back to the. Let's go back to the beginner level that we are. Exactly. So <laughs> we're currently at. So, so on this list of gurus that you've curated, you said that number one 
value investors. Mm -hmm. Number two, value investors with a small number of positions. Those are my favorite value investors. Yep. But exactly. those, that's essentially the criteria, right? Right. Now, let me let me just give you an understanding about why that's the case, why those are the two things. First, yes. value investing is broadly described as trying to find something where you're paying less than what it's worth. It has a value of 10, you're paying five, that's value investing, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, there's two broad groups that do value investing. There's the Ben Graham followers, and then there are the Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger followers. Now, Warren Buffett credits Ben Graham with 85% of his investing strategy, which is basically all about um, being able to understand when there's a difference between price and value. Ben Graham literally wrote the book on it called Security Analysis uh, back in the 1930s. It's still published today as a textbook and it's used in, in probably every major financial program. And it's extremely deep in the weeds. Um, and I don't really recommend it unless you really want to get deep in the weeds. Yeah, it's um, a tough one. But it's, a, it's the original Bible of value investing. Then in 1949, Graham wrote a second book called The Intelligent Investor, where he said, you don't really need to read security analysis. After all these years of investing, I've decided just here's the main points. And that book is really pretty easy to read. And it's very thin. And Warren Buffett recommends it as the single best book ever written on investing. So that's called The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. So here's the point. Buffett spun off of Graham and started a different kind of line of investing um, after he partnered with Charlie Munger. Now, Ben Graham's style of value investing was to buy 100 to 200 stocks that looked super cheap to him. Mm. Now, he was doing this during the Depression when you could buy companies at less than the net cash they have in their balance sheet. In other words, you less could... Less than the net cash they have in their balance sheet. Yeah, so, so if you could buy the entire company, let's say, for a million dollars in 1935, um, Ben Graham's criteria was that they had more than a million dollars if he liquidated the company on the spot. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, a deal like that does not exist right not now. Not anymore, right? And so really this, this idea of buying a lot of companies that you don't have to research deeply, you just look at the numbers and you buy them. Some are gonna fail, but some are gonna turn into super deals. And that, that created a 20 plus percent rate of return for Ben Graham through the depression, World War II, all the way up to the 1950s. And then Buffett started with that kind of an idea, um, but then it got refined relatively quickly by he and Charlie working through what was obviously the difficulty of finding a lot of those kind of cheap companies. And by yeah, the 1950s, yeah. they were disappearing. It was no longer the Depression. All right. At that point, Charlie Munger said, look, it's better that we buy a wonderful business at a fair price than a fair business at a wonderful price. In other words, instead of trying to buy these things for a nickel on the dollar or 10 cents on the dollar, let's buy them at 50 cents on the dollar. But let's make sure that they're all really good companies, that they have a business franchise that we've come to call a moat. And like, means, let's try to kick out the ones that are going to fail and only pick the ones that we think are great companies that are, as far as we can tell, definitely going to go up. Right. And the difference between these two strategies is pretty fundamental in terms of, a, of an individual novice investor. 
Ben Graham's strategy requires that you're in the market all the time, all the time, all the time. It's a full-time thing to stay on top of 200 companies that are moving through everything from bankruptcy oh, to going on. Is that the what in the market means? Like buying and selling buying all and the selling. time? Yeah, buying and selling. We're in the market all the time. So you just got yourself a full-time job. All right. Yeah. Now shift over to the way Buffett and Munger do it, the way Guy Spear, Bill Ackman, um, all the way I'm working with it, the way I want you to work with it. And what you're essentially doing is you're, instead of looking at the entire market, looking for these hundreds of bargains, you're looking at a very small piece of the market. You're focusing in on just a specific circle of competence that you are good at, and then you're doing nothing and waiting for the best company in that circle to go on sale, which it will with enormous certainty based just on the on the on the fluctuations of the economy. It's going to we're going to go through a recession, everything goes on sale, that's when you buy your companies. 7 or 8 years later they get extremely overpriced as we go through the other end of the economic cycle. You sell them off, wait a couple years, buy them back cheap and do it again and repeat this process many times over your life. And in this process, Buffett says you don't need more than 20 companies in your lifetime. And you only need four or five of them to really do well. And you'll be very wealthy. So really similar starting points, understanding the value of the business versus the price, but then a pretty radical departure in terms of how active you're going to be. So Buffett and Munger have found that the less you do, the more you make. So you're saying all this because I said that first you choose value investors. And what I think what you're saying is actually classical Ben Graham buy a whole bunch of companies. Value investors are not the ones that I follow. Is that true? Not exactly true. <laughs> I would have said it for sure. <laughs> because there are some guys on my list that do have quite a number of companies. But um, they they tend to be pretty focused at the at the um on a several that they've owned and then they have a lot that they're looking at with a small position. So there are people on here who do have a, a large number of, of positions, maybe 50 or 60, um, but they're they're not the normal case, right? So, you know, if, if you look at a typical investor, you know, here's Alex Ropers, he's got 24 stocks, you know, Alan Meacham has 25 stocks, Bill Ackman has six. Um, oh, okay. Here's Bill Nazgovitz at Heartland Select Value. He's got 229. So wow. here's a guy that I've got on my list because I like what he does. He's got some pretty good focus, but he's got a lot of positions. All right. So if we went down to Buffett, Warren Buffett's got 51 positions, but 75, 80% of his portfolio is in the top five or six. See all the, right. See so to me, that sounds like what I said earlier is actually true. Yes, they have uh, some other stuff that they've bought with small positions, but really these you've chosen people who buy a small number of companies that they think are very good companies. Yep, exactly. And, um, and so that's our kind of basic difference in the marketplace. And, um, the, and the power of looking at these guys, these, these, these different fund managers is that you'll see different strategies. Like you can see some who are focused on real small cap stocks and they're doing a lot of research on biotech or engineering companies that they've gotten an expertise in a, their circle of mm. competence wouldn't mm -hmm. be something I could 
figure out very well. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got guys like other people who are very active investors. They're going to get in, try to get seats on the board. Um, they're going to try to to kick out the old uh, management team that sort of do a turnaround and do it. Yeah, and do a turnaround or and unleash the value of the business. Um, so you've got different people doing different kinds of strategies, and it's very important before you copy somebody that you know that, for example, they're if they're a turnaround investor, you get to understand that you know they may be coming in with a company that looks like it's not particularly cheap, right? They're they're mm -hmm. buying something that they're paying looks like they're paying full price, but they believe they can unlock a lot of value in that company. Mm -hmm. Or some people just refuse to invest until they get an opportunities that are obviously super on sale. We call those deep value investors. So you'll see different strategies and you need to know what's that strategy and how do you figure that out? You just Google that that guru's name and start reading about them and it'll come up. Oh, is quick. that how you do it? Okay. Yeah. Just Google them. I mean, often they're going to talk about how their investment strategy functions. And when they go on CNBC, somebody's written a book about them. Um, you go to their website, read what their strategy is. I mean, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised since I started out by saying, well, I guess I should just research them myself, but you have a list. And here you are saying I have a list and you should research them yourself. <laughs> Seems exactly. like that's how everything goes. <laughs> do yeah. the work yourself you always have is to do always the, the ultimate answer. And you, it's really important, again, that you know whether the person is a long, short uh, hedge fund, right, where they're they're matching pairs of companies. Because then you're only going to see the long positions, the ones that they bought, and you're not going to see the shorts. And that means you could be getting in a much riskier position than they're in, right? They don't, they don't really care whether the market goes up or down. They just think this is a better company than the worst company. So um, let's talk about some of these. You want to? Yeah, please. Okay. Let's start with, <clears throat> with Warren Buffett. We talked about him a little bit um, last time in terms of having the Todd and Ted um, assistant fund managers there at Berkshire who are buying a lot of the smaller companies, right? So we might want to focus just on the real big ones here if we're looking at Buffett. And so you know, think, course, just to be clear, there's <clears throat> no information out there about who's buying what, is there? Okay, so let's just recap for everybody who uh, forgets this part. So Berkshire Hathaway has obviously Warren Buffett managing money for them. Um, and then Charlie Munger, by the way, is not really in that officially, right? Is that true? Yeah, he's officially there as a vice chairman. But his own portfolio is typically different than Buffett's. That's than what I thought. Chairman. Okay. Okay. So uh, you've got Warren Buffett, but then you've also got these other two guys whose who Todd can't remember their last names, but they are Todd and Ted. It's Ted Wexler <laughs> and Todd Combs. I didn't remember them last time, but now I got them. There My go. apologies, Ted and Todd. <laughs> if you ever hear about this, and it's not to not to to in any way take away from how skilled you guys are. Um, obviously, living in the shadow of Warren Buffett is is quite a trick, and you're doing phenomenal rates of return. So my apologies, but Todd Combs and Ted Wexler were brought on board by Buffett because he thought they would be the best choices for taking Berkshire forward in the future if he's not there to manage it. Uh, so to manage the investing to manage the investing part. You said they are managing um, a fairly small portion of the overall funds that Berkshire Hathaway invests. But do we know who is choosing what companies? No. 
Now okay. we have to we just have to make a, an educated guess that Buffett's basic um, modus operandi for buying into a company is to start buying and keep buying until he has a very substantial position of his portfolio in it, which would mean you know five percent, six percent. So we, we we don't know if it's Buffett or Ted or Todd that's doing the initial purchasing. If there's a very small position, let's say. Um, a recent purchase of, uh, wow, man, they haven't been buying much of anything lately. Mm. That's amazing. They just bought some, they just bought some more Bank of America in Q3 2017. That's wild. They jacked up B of A. Okay, so if you see that Buffett is buying, or that Berkshire has a small holding, like let's say Procter & Gamble is less than 10, a tenth of a percent, um, that could be Buffett starting to take a position in Procter & Gamble, which he will continue to add to over the next year. Or it could be Ted or Todd buying that as a small portion, as a larger portion of their small portfolio. Um, so you just don't know. No now, way to know. There's no way to know, right? No way to know um, until you start to see it grow. Now, what you can know is the big positions are definitely Buffett, right? So... Kraft, Wells Fargo, Apple, Coke, uh, Bank of America, American Express, Phillips 66, IBM, um, the Ford Airlines, Southwest Delta, American United. Those are all Buffett, right? Those are and we know that positions. because Ted right. and Todd have such a small amount of money comparatively right. to work with, correct? So right. by virtue of being such a large position, it has to be the overall portfolio. Right, exactly. So, for example, right now the <clears throat> the portfolio is 182 billion dollars, <throat> and 10% of that, of course, is 18 billion, and <clears throat> that's the total amount that Ted and Todd have to work with. Okay. And, and Buffett's okay. got that in one stock, right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> so okay. you look at this, and it really helps to have some knowledge of what's going on here. I would call it yeah. essential, actually, yeah, pretty because essential. otherwise you're reading this thing and you're taking uh, incomplete conclusions away. Right, exactly. Now, oh, I'm just like to, one more thing to but you only study to, up on here. You only have here. to do that once. You know, you go through this over a period of a few months and you start to learn who these people are and how yeah, that's you're done for your life. So that's true. here's Charlie Munger. Um, Charlie has, you know, not bought anything for several years. It's, I mean, a couple, two, three years. Um, he owns Wells Fargo, Bank of America, U.S. Bank Corp., and POSCO, um, which is a Korean steel company. And, um, and Charlie, you know, obviously we were there back last year at Charlie's, or last February at Charlie's meeting. And Charlie's not buying anything. I mean, he's basically telling you with his actions that the market's too high for the companies he's interested in. Um, mm -hmm. he's, just, he's just not buying them. And he personally owns two companies, Costco and Berkshire. That is, he, how do we know that? Well, he told us at the meeting, that's what he owns. So his company has one group of stocks. He's got another little group of stocks, but not doing any activities at all. Now, you need to know why. Well, Charlie Munger is the abominable no man to <laughs> Warren Buffett's enthusiasm. Every time you say company. that, it makes me laugh. I know. It's what Warren calls him. And so Charlie is very, very focused and very patient. And as a result, he's willing to sustain a lot more volatility in his portfolio going up and down through the bad markets and so on. And, you know, that 
he's not spreading the money around. He's highly focused, right? So four stocks with almost $200 million in them right there um, as part of his. And of course, he's worth a billion dollars. So that tells you a lot. Well, I was just going to say, I do kind of wonder if Charlie's just gotten to the point where he's good. Like, do you think he's really out there actively searching for the next thing to invest in? I don't know. I think maybe if it were like if the market crashes and there's a whole bunch of interesting opportunities, I could see him taking advantage then. But is he like spending his time in this market looking around? I don't know if he really is. I don't think Charlie's ever spent his time in the market looking around. <laughs> really? I, right. I, I think what Charlie does and what Warren does and what a lot of really good investors do is they spend their time reading about stuff that they're interested in. Well, that's so, what I meant by looking around. Okay, but it's not. What did I mean, you mean? Well, it's sort of the the Ben Graham in the market looking around idea, which is you're looking at hundreds of companies and evaluating them and doing all that. Whereas Charlie is just reading stuff. He's reading the Wall Street Journal. He's reading the New York Times, the Financial Times. He's reading uh, uh, interesting nonfiction books about areas of the world that are fascinating to them. And that's what Buffett does, too. And the impact of that is that you have this educated mind. And when something starts to tickle you that hmm, this looks like an interesting area to think about, then you can start looking at companies that are in that area. So I, I think it, it, you know, it's a little bit of a, a, of a circle, uh, you know, sort of a, a virtuous circle where you start to look into areas and that takes you to companies and then that takes you to areas and that takes you to companies. And, right. And you end up with this broad education, uh, particularly in the areas you're interested in. So, for example, you know, I get interested in, in what's going on with Chipotle. And we've talked about it a lot here because I really like the company and I like what they're doing. And that takes me into the fast food business. And then you read about some other company and you discover that Burger King is out there with Bill Ackman. And he, it just you just start wandering through the weeds, reading, 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 reading in order to be competent at understanding the business. And I think that's right. what Charlie and mostly does. He, he still reads probably 80% of his time a day. Yeah, but I, my point is there is a strong difference. And yet, I don't think you even notice it. Because the difference is doing that reading with an eye towards future investment. With an eye towards how does this translate into companies? How does this translate into an industry? How is this political event or this war on the other side of the world going to affect McDonald's, <laughs> you know, going to affect Coca-Cola, going to affect IBM, going to affect Wells Fargo, just to list some that, that Warren Buffett invests in. Sure. So there's a huge difference between that and let's say somebody whose job is to study archaeology, they're going to be looking at those events through the lens of archaeology. And that's my point. When I say looking around sort of for companies, I don't mean in the market, I mean, doing the reading, being interested, reading the news. I mean, that's what I've taught myself to do and through this you, process. And asking yourself, where's the future going? Yeah. And asking myself, like, what are the implications on business? Which for me was a completely new point of view, a completely new question. Yes, we all kind of think about it. Okay, fine. Like that's sort of out there. Like, yes, there are companies, you know, da, da, da. I even worked with companies and I never really thought about it too much from a business perspective. And, to, and I think you do it automatically. And that's why you're, you say, all you have to do is read. And it's like, well, 
not really. <laughs> yes, it's the reading, <laughs> but with an eye towards this stuff. That's interesting. I think you may be onto something there. I didn't really think about it that way. Um, but I think no, I mean, right. people who do things naturally, of course, never think about really the steps. I, I am on some level always looking for a good place to put my money. I mean, whether I mean, literally, it might be land, it might be a private business, it might be a building down in Noonan, right? I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, I, I almost can't see the world without thinking in that way. So, for example, this little town we live near in Georgia um, is now starting to, I mean, clearly, it's starting to really develop itself into a whole new uh, thing than it's been for the last hundred years. Um, a lot of businesses moving down south of Atlanta now. And this town is a nice little town. It's got a nice little square. And you can't help but see it. I mean, if you and this is the whole way you think about investing in any case. If you're involved in it and you're looking at it and you're understanding it, whatever it is, whether it's the, the town I live near or whether it's a company I'm interested in or an industry I'm interested in, I'm involved in it. And you see it evolve and you see it change and you say, oh, well, this is really going to be good in the future, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not like yeah. it just jumps out at you one day. It's like it's a slow process. It's an evolving process. And you you could get out of it early. Attention. Of yeah, paying attention. Yeah. From... You, you can get in early and speculate or you can just let it develop and see if, in fact, that's where it's all going. And then you make an investment. So mm -hmm. it's exactly like that. So I, I think when we're looking at these gurus, we started with Buffett and Munger, right? So Buffett, a little more diversified than Munger. Munger, very focused, very, very focused and very, very patient, not doing much right now at all. And I want to want to take you through three more um, that we should get into next time, because these are different kinds of investors. These are younger investors. Um, these are all people. Uh, that, in their that's 40s. interesting. Yes. And, and that actually, I think, is a really important point that you haven't made yet. How long have these people been doing this slash <laughs> like what's their perspective because of how long they've been doing it? And I think there's value to both sides of that. There is. And I, I will say this. Charlie Munger addressed this at the annual Berkshire meeting that, you know, Warren has gotten better every year. Better and better and better investor every single year of his life. And that's what's going to happen to you, too, hon. I mean, I'm telling you right now, if you do this as a practice, just like being in yoga or just like snowboarding or anything else, you're going to get better every single year. You don't have to try to get better. You just do the practice and you're going to get better. And that getting better means that you're going to have in our world here, you're going to have more opportunities to invest. You're going to see, see things more. that I didn't see before. Yeah. That's that's what I experience a lot is I see things that six months ago I would have not noticed. Yep. And so it's not that you won't, you know, I, I think you can start off as a novice, obviously, and, and not make mistakes, but you have to stay real focused mm -hmm. in order to not make mistakes. But as you get better and better, you have more things you can focus on. So we'll come back to these guys. This is going to be Alan Meacham, Michael Burry, and Guy Spear next time. Cool. And, yeah, uh, I want to. I, I really want to talk more in detail about what these different gurus are doing. So let's get into that. All right, just to tee up, uh, Michael Burry, of course, is the guy on the Big Short, who is sort of dyslexic, pounding away with heavy metal, um, while his investors were screaming at him and they were going to sue him. 
and he ended up making $3 billion. Burry, genius, and we can take a look at his portfolio. So we're going to do that next week. Be kind of cool. Cool. All right. All right. Till then. Oh, you know what? We're not going to do this next week. What we're going to do next week is give you guys a little Christmas present. Next week is Christmas. You're it right. Is. Yeah. So <laughs> How we're did do Christmas creep up Christmas. on us this year? Good Lord. Um, yeah, we're going to give you a little uh, Christmas greeting, and we will get into this along with so many other things in the new year. That's it. So until then, time to go play. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.